history is an informative and fun deep dive into the workers behind the professions. I'm your host, Cassie Townsend, a jacket of all trades. We'll cover the ins and outs of jobs and careers and the daily grind that led professionals to where they are and where they're going. On today's show, we will talk to a CEO, yeah, a CEO named Ronnie Dubois. Hi, Ronnie. Welcome. Hi, Cassie. (laughs) I got that right, right? Yes. Yes, I wrote it down and then I moved the note. So then I couldn't read it anymore. But it's right there. CEO of Fool's Cap. Right, right. So what is Fool's Cap? Fool's Cap is kind of an umbrella company under which I've done dozens of different things inside the theme park industry. So my husband and I built buildings and businesses for other people. We managed for other people. And then we built our own businesses, some of which we then ran and then sold and We've consulted on everything from building design to business, some branding, and some. sometimes somebody has a blind spot around even something as simple as pricing and perceived value. That's a big blind spot for a lot of people, actually. Um, I know for anyone who creates, that's always, in my experience, the age-old question is i made this thing how much is it worth and you're i i think the formula is like cost times hours uh plus materials in theory but how many years do you have building your experience to be able to do it that quickly oh yeah and how much uh real world experience do you have selling something and explaining to someone how it works in their lives. I mean, part of the problem with having just a straight formula is that when dealing with artists, they tend to live inside a starving artist narrative. Yeah. That I'm, I'm not a real artist unless I have suffered somehow. Right. And that keeps people from charging what they could charge for their, their art. Okay. And perceived value then comes into it. Right, you, right. You can be at one show, two people working in a similar medium, one person charges more, presents in a different way, they sell out. The person selling the same product for less money doesn't sell out. Right. Because the audience buys from who they want to identify with. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I was just imagining the, I was at a show in the last year of, um, and there were two artists like painters right next to each other mm-hmm. with totally different uh <clears throat> types of art one very i don't want to say i don't want to say anything <laughs> uh disparaging about either one of them because they were both beautiful just one was more i guess um they were just two different styles like one was uh, more cartoony and and frivolous and the other one was a little bit more realistic and realism based, mm-hmm. uh, but also whimsical. So, it, it, you know, a little, yeah. it's tough to say those two words against each other. Um, but definitely the price points were different. The person yeah. who had been arting for, you know, drawing, painting for years, 40 plus years, was selling their artwork for 250 plus. Uh-huh. And then the, um, the new person who was just doing that show for the first year was show, selling their stuff for maybe 20 bucks. And uh, and part of it is because one of them is doing it for such a long time that their art is worth 
that much now and and the longevity of their world right their career right. the career yeah, they built a career around it right yeah and that's that sounds great but at the same time it's like there's people that aren't even going to look at the $20 stuff right because right. that's not what they buy right right you know yeah. so take going to the $20 person and going pick one pick one piece that you have a lot of energy in and price it way up there mm-hmm. so that it raises the perceived value of all of your $20 stuff. Right, Because right. now it's like, oh, she does this this higher dollar stuff and this is the piece of her work that I can afford right now. Right, right. You know, so there's a lot of stuff that goes on with that. That's that, interesting. That we talk about when we're talking about business inside theme yeah. parks. Um, the, Okay. The term I like to use for what we're doing here is experiential retail. Okay. Because we're creating an experience in which we're selling things. Yeah. Now, yeah. the term isn't really applied to our industry. If you went to Wikipedia and typed in experiential retail, they would tell you, oh, when Samsung sets up a sales venue outside of a Comic-Con or... South by Southwest, that's experience. They'll create an experience so that you then have an idea, idea of what their brand is. Okay. But Renaissance festivals have been doing experiential retail for 50 years. Yeah. Well, since the 60s. Yeah. yeah. So maybe even, is that longer? So maybe longer. Yeah. yeah. It's 40, 50, 60 years. I have, I have 50 years stuck in my head because we're already planning the 50-year anniversary celebration for the Texas Renaissance Festival. Oh, and that... Reminds me, that's where we're at right now. That's is, right. Um, so this is a traveling podcast. I, I didn't mention that in some of the other episodes I've recorded so far, but I travel all over the country all year long, and I personally perform at different Renaissance festivals all over the country, and I found it so interesting, all these different lives and all these different jobs within this world that we live in. Like my first episode is with a pathologist. Nice. Who also plays the guitar at a Renaissance fair? Oh, that's delicious. you know, like how, how, why, yeah. what, what, where else what, could you find that? Right. Yeah. What, what made that person do that? And, um, and so that's a really fun story. But, uh, my point is that I, uh, because I travel, um, and I'm in Texas right now. I'm, I'm utilizing the people around me, and and Ronnie, uh, we met in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and we had. I had a great time meeting you. You're fantastic to work for. Um, I did some week work for her and and your husband. (laughs) And um, it's just so interesting to me, like, what people do on a day-by-day basis. So as a CEO, what does your daily day look like? And I know it's varied because of the wild industry that you're in. But what does a generic day look like? So uh, I have two distinct seasons I have the work season where I cram everything into like for two months this business we're running at Texas if it were open all year long it would be a multi-million dollar restaurant business Mm. but it's not because we're only open for two months and I say two months because it takes us the solid two months to make it happen I've got people downstairs prepping food right now that we're going to sell on the weekend wow but these businesses are actually only open to the public for 17 days. Right, because it's only weekends. Right. Or, uh, you know, maybe kids' days or or a holiday here and there. This show has Black Friday. Okay. 
but it's eight weekends plus Black Friday. Yeah. So you have 17 days to make all that chunk of change. Right. And so here I'm very structured. I have uh, Monday, I have meetings for the first part of the day. I guess I should start with Saturday. Saturday and Sunday are both 16-hour days for me. My shop is a, a bakery and a breakfast place. It's at the front of the festival. I open at 7.30 in the morning for breakfast for participants because there's about 2,000 people that work here. Yeah, and by the way, the spinach quiche was amazing. Oh, good. good. Yeah. Glad you Oh, my it. gosh. I had to buy one on Saturday. I was like, oh, smell, smell. As I'm going to morning meeting, I was like, perfect. oh, my gosh, this smells so good. <laughs> perfect. We're making biscuits from scratch. And yeah. I mean, we really do a nice job. The park opens at 9 a.m. The park closes with fireworks at 8 p.m. But again, I'm at the front of the show. So... I have bakery cases built into my counter, and I stay open for half an hour after the final fireworks so that people can grab a snack on the way out. If They're going to try to keep their kids quiet in the car as they're yeah. making their way out of the parking lot and home. That's a very uh, uh, Disneyland way to look at it because that's what happens at Disneyland or Disney World is the fire, the last, the phantasmic or whatever happens, and then there's a mad rush to the cars mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. trams. And there's right. always those last-minute purchases. Those last minute, that's where the lights are on. That's where you can go and get something. So yeah. I, we do that here, but it makes for very long days. Mm-hmm. So we have two 16-hour days on Saturday, Sunday. And then Monday I have, like, three meetings before noon. Wow. And then I go to sleep. Yeah. So Monday has to have a big nap in it. And then Tuesday is uh, my orders have to be in, and we do payroll. I do a weekly payroll. And uh, kind of any any lo- orders that didn't get put in on, on Monday get it put in on Tuesday. And then Wednesdays, I traditionally escape. Oh. I, I, I reach escape velocity for half a day on Wednesday. That's great. Go out with a girlfriend, have a nice lunch. Maybe, you know, there, yes, there's banking and shopping that still happens. But with that. It's a personal I, day. It's just a personal day. Yeah. I'm still doing some business. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thursday, basically all week I try not to let myself work past 5 p.m. Good. Which it's really easy to do because you get into a project and then suddenly it's 7. Right. And I try to go to bed early. I wear, uh, I first started wearing a Fitbit or a smartwatch just to track my sleep. Mm. Because if you make up your sleep deprivation within a week, you don't have long-term effects from it. Oh, okay. So try to track what your weekly average is so you can keep it, keep it caught up. Hmm. But then the rest of the year, I have my own I have my own schedule. It's like if I want to have a morning to work on whatever, then I can I can decide that I'm going to shift into work mode at 10 a.m. and I'm going to do nothing but work for 4 hours. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I do do a lot of time blocking. Uh-huh. So I use post-it notes with different colors on my wall calendar so that I know what things I have to give attention to in a week, but I can move them around as my mm. as my interest peaks or falls. It's like, oh, I don't really feel like working on brand imagery today, so I'll swap it with this color and work on that on Wednesday or something. So I, I have that kind of freedom in the rest of the year that I that I wouldn't have if my business was open all year. Right, right. Uh, that is a, a benefit for sure. Um, so how did you, uh, actually, better question, 
Um, one that I really like asking. Five-year-old Ronnie. What did five-year-old Ronnie want to be when she grew up? An archaeologist. Oh, my gosh. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, and I was... I, Indiana I'm, Jones? No, and, it wasn't no. that. That wasn't even... Ex- I'm, I'm older than you, I'm darling. Not gonna, I'm not going <laughs> to comment on that. The listener doesn't know that. <laughs> right. Well, the I had free reign of libraries mm. as a child. And so, and but I've always been more interested in learning than in escaping. Okay. So when you have the choices of the books to read, it's like, do I want to read a Nancy Drew mystery? Mm. Or do I want to read how they mummified people you know (laughs) i want to read how they mummified people so um i'm at the time i would say as a little little girl it was like the most fascinating thing and now i know it's because it included travel and it included um learning about different places and different people and how they did things and so i think that's probably core to why that was interesting to me as a five-year-old um is there anything that you're doing i mean travel for sure is what you're doing now that that compensates for that or or appeases that five-year-old is there anything else uh, in your current job that you're doing that is similar to archaeology yeah well not archaeology but i can say that the other thing that i expected to do when i was five years old was i expected to own a restaurant or oh. run a restaurant because my father ran a restaurant. Oh, okay. My father was my father ran NCO clubs and officers clubs in the Air Force. Oh, wow! And so uh, we he would tell people my first PR job was as a three year old. He set me on the bar in the officers club at March Air Force Base, and I was like, "My <laughs> pop runs this place. How how are you having a good time?" My mother was livid. I'm sure, <laughs> but uh, but there is something. And not everybody's wired like this, mm-hmm. but there is some kind of back brain primordial thing that is fed in, in the act of feeding another human, mm. you know? And, and like, if, if I were to give you a body posture for that, it's like, I want you to picture holding a bowl and handing it away to someone. Mm. And there's something about that that feeds us. And I really work, part of how I have great teams is that I really work to hire people that have that same thing, that whole, it's something, part of it is kind of a sense of service, but there's just something about you're helping keep a human alive. Yeah. That yeah. That, that works for us and it flips, uh, flips a, a switch for us mm-hmm. that keeps us happy and whole. Cool. Yeah, there's definitely something about the the grandmothers and the uh, the ancient ones or the ones who came before us that always had that pot going. Or, um, you know, you often people think about their grandmother and that one dish that they always make. Like, um, for my mom, she loved when her mother made. I think it was a. Oh, my grandmother's gonna listen to this and she's gonna go. No, it's not. It was this one. Uh, but I want to say it was like a London broil. I think that was like always the the meal that my mom liked, but I could be wrong. Um, but I know we always went, my family went to a place called Oyster Creek, and it's still around in Jersey in Leeds Point. And every Friday night, and for special occasions as well, my parents were married on the dock there, mm-hmm. and 
for us that that was a way that nobody had to cook mm-hmm. but we could go and celebrate and and be together and where everybody knew your name you know my granddad had his his chair at the bar chalky's chair you nice. know may still has her paintings up at the place you can buy my grandmother's paintings on the walls my aunt jennifer now paints and she also has paintings on the walls there that you can purchase and it's a small plug for them in jersey but uh it's it's such a magical place and that's that's also where we get that 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 server feeling that um here's the bowl like the one waitress I can remember who has been serving us for years and years and years is Tammy. And she is just so wonderful. Just yeah. so a bright shining star and she's just right. so kind. And, um, and, that, and she reminds me of someone that you have working for you in Oklahoma, which is Pam. Uh-huh. You know, Pam is just, she and I kicked it off right away before I even knew you in 2019. You know, I'm walking around as my clowny self, and she was like, girl, get over here. <laughs> nice. And we just had a good rapport, and that's, nice. you know, finding those people is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah she's she's off doing her own gig right now. Pam is? Yeah, we, we kind of consulted her, and uh, that little festival in Oklahoma, we only do their spring show. Yeah. But they have a Halloween show, and Pam is there. With her own shop. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. In the Hi, same Pam. building? Yeah. Yeah, she's in oh, our building. so cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, she knows it, so that's yeah. good. Yeah. That's fantastic. Good yeah. on her. Yeah, and we're good really on you excited for, for her. Yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. Uh, okay, so what was, your, what was your first job? How old were you, and what did you do? What did you get paid for? I never really, I didn't do a lot of babysitting or that kind of stuff growing up I lied about my age at 14 and got a restaurant job oh okay and uh and became a trainer shortly thereafter Uh for this company (laughs) and I remember the the problem was socializing with people for a year because you become a family yeah in a restaurant and here I was lying to these people about my age and I finally was going to quit and I went to the manager I still remember him Mr. O'Connor, and he was like this former Green Beret with a scar across his eye, Whoa. and like six four, six five, but it was the late seventies, early eighties, and so he had like weatherman bouffant, wearing mm-hmm. polyester slacks and Oof. a polyester shirt and a cheap tie. Yeah, because this was just he's a restaurant manager, right? But underlying this this semi-ridiculous outfit was the fact that he was one of the state uh, experts on martial arts. Oh. <laughs> he, would go, he would go judge all these martial arts competitions. Oh, my gosh. So he's a total badass. Yeah. And I'd be training people. I remember training somebody, and uh, he says, this person's missing one thing. And I said, sir? He says, that's it. Oh. And I was raised in a military household, so, right. of course, I had that. Mm-hmm. And so... And, of course, he was accustomed to that because he was military. But when I went to him and said, I think I'm going to have to quit. You know, I've been there for nine, ten months or something. He said, why? I said, because I'm 14 years old. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I'm, and I just can't lie to everybody anymore. He says, please don't tell anybody. You're the best trainer I have. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, yeah. 
So, um, so I worked there. And then just kind of that whole little history of, of whatever local restaurant jobs you get while you're in high school. Mm-hmm. And um, then I wanted to, to, yeah, so that's the first job. Yeah, no, yeah. that's great. That's great. That's wonderful. My first job ever was McDonald's, and I've talked about that a couple times now in, in some interviews. And uh, my very first job job that wasn't paid was part of a workforce kind of thing mm-hmm. for wayward teens in North Carolina. And half of the summer was learning about how to balance checkbooks, and, and I got a really good education for that. Like, we were given the... Um, the flyer for the food flyer, like at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And then we had to feed a family of four with a hundred dollars or $200. Everybody should have to learn that. Right. That's, that, that's some good that stuff. That was really, really good. And then the other thing we did was, and balance checkbooks, but then mm-hmm. the other half of the summer was split in half again. So a quarter of it was digging out a fish hatchery. <laughs> and the other quarter was uh, relocating um, goats, like shepherding goats which is all you are doing is digging post holes and moving posts. Yeah, yeah. that's it. And petting a goat every once in a while. Uh, So so my first actual paid job was McDonald's. But Mm -hmm. within within months, I was training and I was working as a manager, even though I was 16. Uh, My first unpaid job would be being the eldest in a latchkey family. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that whole list. Right. How many siblings? I only had two siblings, but my brother was two years younger than me, and my sister was six years younger than me. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, I'm cooking for everybody and, and yeah. making sure people have their clothes together for tomorrow and all that stuff. Right, right. So, you were kind of trained to be the manager. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was household manager age. from yeah. 12. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, what, what kind of odd jobs have you had? Like, if somebody wanted to become a CEO of something and they're like, oh, yeah, but right now I'm stuck uh, working on this thing, what kind of odd jobs did you have that kind of filled in those gaps? Well, I, I've i been, I, I'm going to say again that I'm a lifelong learner, so I'm always happy to, like, oh, I can learn how to do that. But I've always been good at finding gaps. So uh, my now husband, Phil. So I got into the Renaissance circuit 32 years ago when I ran away with a good-looking carpenter. Oh, yeah. Who, who I'm still with. We were de- 12 years into our relationship, we decided to get married. Nice. And uh, we, he was building things, and I was like, this would look a lot better with paint on it. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so, and so I got an airless sprayer and, you know, painted and trimmed buildings which i could give somebody a booth facelift for not a lot of money and people are happy to do that i mean Mm -hmm. these people have a business that they're trying to do well in that they only have 17 days a year to to make the money so they don't want to keep investing over and over in their structure right but uh so for a while i was painting booths and then i um started designing booths because as the building restrictions got stricter mm-hmm. um, we had to pull permits from the cities and so somebody had to draw that so I learned a CAD drawing system so that I could draw the buildings I learned five different building codes because we were building in five different regions Wow! and I would 
um, I was completely self-taught. Wow. And I'd draw this stuff and I'd go into the city and find out what they did or didn't like. Mm -hmm. And I learned that building inspectors all have something they did before they were building inspectors. Well, yeah. And, I mean, yep. if you learn we what that do. is, <laughs> yeah. then your permit will be approved faster. Huh. So, for example, the guy in Georgia was an electrician. So oh. his, all of the safety around the, elect, the electricity. electricity inside the building was really important to him. And so you had to really make that clear on the plans that you drew. And the guy in New York was an arson investigator. And so he wanted fire, fire, fire extinguishers and escapes. Like for him, I built a, we designed a steak booth that had this rail, there was a grill out front with a, a sales counter around it you know, and enough room between the grill and the sales counter for people. And he wanted part of the counter to open up as like a door huh? so that they could go forward in case of a fire and Instead not have to go back. past right. to go out the back that door. That makes sense. It does. Now, in my mind, they could jump over the counter, but right, right. that's not but illegal. What, but like what if they couldn't? What if they couldn't? Right. right. What so, if they... So he was like, I like everything on this, but I need an escape for the counter people. And I was like, okay. Yeah. And then, and he was the one that was, he said, legally you need two 10-pound fire extinguishers. But I'm going to tell you right now that when you're hiring kids, what's going to work better for you is to have four five-pounders because they can handle them and yeah. they can maneuver them. And so he would... He would say, you know, I think that would look better. Well, that's a hint that that's what needs right. to be on your drawing. <laughs> right. You right. know, so, um, wow. so I did that for years. Now, did you, um, the more you got, you know, the backgrounds of people, did you start applying all of those things? Like, for example, if you were working in Oklahoma next, did you enact the um, electricians oh, thing yeah. and the oh, fire yeah. arson guys thing? And Yeah, because it was really easy if you put, like, the extra level of attention to something that was, especially if it was a safety-related item, then they're like, oh, this girl's got this. And he, and they might go, I don't understand this. Yeah, uh, like, this why do you have this you have? door here? Right. And you can what? go, <laughs> it's because of fire, dude. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. Well, and, and yeah. then tell them the stories. Like, my yeah. inspector in New York is also an arson investigator, and this was important to him. Yeah. They love that stuff. Yeah. They're like, oh, she listens. Yeah. So they feel like they'll be listened to. Fantastic. So cool. there I was, you know, no architecture degree, no, no architecture stamps on any of my drawings, but because I listened and then I would, if they told me something, I'd go home, redraw it, come back. Right. They'd right. be like, oh, oh, oh she yeah, heard. she heard me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. So I also studied sustainable agriculture. Oh. Yeah. And I don't know what I got from that other than i really love to landscape around buildings okay and in uh new york i always landscaped with vegetables which the festival loves that oh, because yeah. there yeah. should be some tomato plants here somewhere for sure well maybe not tomato plants that's a new world plant but right people, lettuce people would potatoes. be gardens yeah the, the g pretty garden space next to their booth would have a vegetable or two in there just yeah yeah adds a little more authenticity to the fact that a renaissance festival is supposed to look like a 16th century village right right and in theory you'd be plucking from that to right. put on the sandwich that you're serving yeah even though that's not actual 
Right. Right. There's no way that can happen. No. Um, wow, that's really cool. I, I hadn't even thought about um, the aesthetics of of using plants and stuff, but it is true. Like, Texas Renaissance Festival is absolutely gorgeous when you're looking at the, the layout and the, the pathways and stuff. I was just talking to somebody yesterday about it and about how gorgeous and well-maintained it is. And same thing with Colorado. It's very gorgeous and well-maintained. Um, there's other festivals that are doing a really good job too. Like Kansas has a, has a full-time gardener. Like that's mm-hmm. what they are supposed to do. And, and they do a really good job at making sure that the, the plants are well watered, especially on the sometimes extremely hot days that mm-hmm. we have. And, and it's a challenge for sure. Um, so our food booths, I'm guessing food booths are closest to the water sources and electricity sources because of the, um, because of the needs of your booth. Well, food booths, when you're laying out a park, they have several specific needs. One is they need, well, they need water and electricity, obviously. They also need a, a good access to the back. Like, I just had a tra- two tractor trailers pull up to the back of this shop this morning mm. to unload what I need. Oh, yeah. So you can't. It's difficult to put a food booth on an inner circle, and if you do put a food booth on an inner circle, then you're going to um, you're going your neighbors are going to lose a lot of their backyard. Mm. It's like if you're next to a food booth, it's good and bad. One, right. you're getting a ton of traffic. Two, you don't have any backyard because they need all the backyard. Right, right. And that's more true on inner circle island type. Uh, locations. locations than on things that are on the perimeter wall. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, a, there's uh, so many different types of these Renaissance festivals out there. There's tent festivals. There's mm-hmm. permanent sites. And, um, and yeah, some, some festivals from what I've seen uh, kind of put the food just kind of in one spot in the middle. And that I find is frustrating as a as a person who just attends because now anybody who wants any kind of food whatsoever has to go to one location and that gets jammed. Yeah. It becomes like this mass panic. There's huge lines. There's, it's usually pretty cramped. Um, the ones that I've seen work the best so far in my experience limited have been the ones that are able to salt and pepper them throughout the festival yeah, and then you can kind of use them to set neighborhoods. Yeah, because every food booth comes with a smell. Yeah, it comes with possibly a dialect of you know, like its own brand. All of my employees wear X. All of their employees wear Y. Right. You know, right. Uh, the Texas Renaissance Festival takes that even a step further, and we have countries and national uh, principalities. Oh wow! So uh, my booth is in the English Scottish departments area. Okay. The next food booth, 20 booths down the road is Spain. And then oh. there's Germany and then Poland. So and it's the Poland, almost like Epcot. Almost. almost. But here's the deal. Yeah. This is the largest Renaissance festival in the U.S. Right. So right. we can't look to another Renaissance festival for what our next level up is. Right. Because you we are look it. to That's <laughs> it. So we look to this weird imagine if Epcot and Las Vegas got married. Yeah, yeah. But liked 
gardens. Right. That would be it. So like Epcot during the garden week mm-hmm. marries Las Vegas because with no gambling. Right. Because it's right. entertainment. It's lots of really visual richness, mm-hmm. which you have in Vegas. You also have an Epcot. But just kind of letting people move through different regions of Europe. Yeah. And this, even before the foods were that divided, this show has like seven or eight different courts. So there's an English court and a Spanish court and a barbarian court and an Italian court and a Scottish court. And those characters, those street characters, carry some neighborhoods. Okay. Uh, And so... There's one path that if you go down, everybody, every person on cast that is working on that path is going to greet you with bonjour. Oh, because it's in the French area. Right, and it's next to the French food. Huh. Now, we're in South Texas. Yeah. So the French food is actually all Cajun food. Oh, okay. But, because right. you still have to make it work economically. Right. Right. You're still here to sell things people want to buy. Right, right. But, um... Yeah, I had the muffalata last weekend. Oh, they make a great muffalata. It's really good. I think personally, I'm allergic to pepper, and there was something spicy in it. Oh yeah, yeah, because probably it's in the Cajun. Yeah, it was yeah. in whatever the the pimento, the olive, the uh, olive thing, the tapenade. That's the word. I'm yeah, for. whatever was in the tapenade, there was something really spicy in that, and I was like, oh god, oh god, I can't eat this. It's so good, but I can't eat it. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that's really the point of a muffalata is the tapenade mm-hmm. <laughs> with the ham. Anyway, um, all right, we're digressing, and I like that. Do you have something in your in your history that's been like your your most random passion project? Now you've done a lot of different things, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so I could give you my current passion project. Sure. Yeah. What's that? So. I've talked to a lot of carpenters over the decades mm-hmm. because that's what I did for a very long time. And the most, fu- when I talk to somebody, I've talked to architects and they're like, wait, 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 you got to draw stuff and see it get built. Yeah. That's just like, nobody gets to do that. Yeah. So my passion project right now is telling carpenters how fun it is to build at Renaissance festivals. Yeah. Because you never build the same thing twice. You get to really dive in as a, as a designer and you get to be whimsical, and that just doesn't happen. And so, and festivals are all in a big growth phase, and there's not enough carpenters here. Mm-hmm. So, I've started a little TikTok series that's just talking about construction at Renaissance festivals. Oh, cool! And what's your TikTok handle? Uh, Ronnie Rocks. R H O N N I R O C K S. Great. And then put I'm a helping tag to that. In the okay. Show oh, notes. awesome! Thanks. Yeah. I'm also helping this festival to write their building covenants. So that's going to end up being a book that a, that a contractor could get a copy of and know what they needed to do. So that's a lot of fun. Cool. So, Ronnie, quick question. Um, I wanted to know, I wanted to circle back on that hot carpenter guy that you met um, back in the day. What were you doing at the time that you got to meet him? I met Phil at the Colorado Renaissance Festival. Okay. So I worked for Footloose Moccasin Makers, which was a custom moccasin company in Aspen, Colorado. 
And I'd never gone to a festival for them. I worked in their workshop helping make moccasins. And uh, I, I was having some depression issues. Uh, I had a bad boyfriend and the, the gals in the, in the workshop all said, oh, Steve, Steve being the owner, Steve, I can't go do the Renaissance Festival. You should send Ronnie, like one by one. So I was the only person available to go to the show because they knew that what I really needed to do was just get out of my circle. Oh, okay. And so they sent me and I would stay in the booth for five days a week. And then uh, then on like Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd drive back up to Aspen with the molds because we'd make three-dimensional molds of people's feet mm-hmm. for the moccasins they were buying. And so basically they were just trying to get me out of town so I could realize that I was not the terrible things that the ex-boyfriend had told me I was. Right. And so, so that's good. On like week two or three, the woman that I was working with, we were on a walk across site and she was, uh, we walked through the campground. She was looking for her cats. Oh, she had cats. We were living in a booth. The cats had gone missing. They were probably at her trailer that she wasn't using. Okay. So we're walking out there and there's these guys building a barn and there's horses in the half built barn and she knows these guys. And so she says, hey, are we going to have a cowboy fun day? And she says it to Rick Alvarez, who led the Hanalees there. And I say this because it's important because Rick's wife, Linda, has been my best friend for 30 years now. And I met her like two weeks later. Nice. But she says, are we going to have cowboy fun day? And he says, no, I don't know. This is our first year at this show. We have a lot going on. Like, no shit. I'm building a barn right now. (laughs) Right. Uh, and uh, he goes, but we do have two horses that we don't have time to exercise. Somebody decided it would be really nice for the king and queen to ride on horses in the parade, and they borrowed two polo ponies from the University of, Calif- of Colorado. Whoa. And I don't have enough guys to exercise them. So if he, he knew she was a horsewoman. Yeah. And so he says, if you guys would, would exercise these horses, it would really help me out. So I'm like, all right. She says, all right, we go change clothes, change into jeans, come back, go horseback riding on these lovely horses on the mountainside in Colorado. Have you ever horse? I had. You had. had. Okay. Uh, Ooh, that was right. <laughs> otherwise trial yeah. of fire, you know? <laughs> right. And, you know, we went, we were just kind of wandering around, but just for a couple hours. But it was hot and dry and yeah. Colorado in late June, you Oof. know? Yeah. And we get back and we're, Currying the horses, and which is the other thing he needed done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is what you do when you ride a horse. You then you thank, to, thank the horse. Yeah, and you feed him. And you, and you feed him. And, and you give him a little bath, a little, yeah. little wipe down. And some, this tall person comes with a, a obviously cold gallon of drinking water because it's, it's covered in um, condensation. And he leans over the top, and he's really tall. He's six foot six, and he leans over, reaches over the, into the stall and says, hi, ladies, can I buy you a drink? <laughs> and that's how I met my now husband. That is adorable. And then we, uh, he kind of circled around that week and asked Kathy if I was available and, you know, did all the social things you're supposed to do. And uh-huh. Then we dated for like five weeks. Wow. The, like the rest of the festival. 
And then we had that long distance phone thing that happens mm-hmm. uh, while he went on and did the rest of the circuit. And then in the fa- in that fall, he helped me finish moving my stuff from my mother's garage to Colorado. Wow. And then in March, I decided to move out of Colorado and move in with him. <laughs> so that was kind of how it started. Cool. That's great. I always love origin stories of, of uh, long-lasting couples. I think that's really, uh, pretty much any couple. I love meet-cutes. I think nice. that's really cool. Uh, and I know that doesn't really have anything to do with jobs, but how did you get the moccasin job? Okay. So I wanted to study sustainable agriculture. And this was 1987, 88. And at that point in time, there were only two universities in the U.S. that had what well, would have been 84 to 86 that I was looking for it. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's only two universities that had sustainable agriculture programs, and those were uh, Evergreen State in Washington mm-hmm. and UC Santa Cruz in California. Wow. I went to high school in Oklahoma. I'm really surprised could, that like more well, farming areas No, 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 because, something. because most of the funding that happened for the ag schools came from chemical companies. Oh. So huh. I knew not to go to the ag school and be the hippie chick that wanted to study at the time we were calling it organic agriculture. And the only way that it ever got anywhere was by changing the name to sustainable agriculture because of the lock that the chemical companies have on agriculture schools. Wow. And so I learned that, so I'm doing all the, all the independent reading I can on these subjects, you know, things coming out of think tanks that we all expect to be put into curriculums. There's a, um, the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is a think tank about energy, and there's um, the Land Institute, which is in Salina, Kansas. It's about um, perennial grains and topsoil sa- saving. Anyway, I'm going to workshops and stuff. Land Institute had a had, still has an annual long weekend uh, festival that it was a meeting of all of the, what would become the academia of sustainable agriculture. And they would tell you what the work of literature was going to be that the weekend was based on. So everybody entered at the same level. So like the first year I went, even though the discussion groups are going to have these big wig writers in there, mm-hmm. we all read the stuff. So it was, uh, that the first time I went, the literature was EF, uh, Small is Beautiful, Economics as If Pe- Exist, People Mattered by E.F. Schumacher. Hmm. And uh, the second year I went, it was Sand County Almanac by Rachel Carson. Hmm. And so you'd be in an open discussion, and I'm like 19, and I'm in a discussion with Amory Lovins, who, who started the, the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is the leading think tank on alternative energy. Wow. You know, I mean, it was really neat. The Land Institute's doing some amazing work. And, uh, I mean, Wendell Berry's on their, was on their board of directors. I mean, it was just, like, such a great blend of literature and um, environmentalism mm-hmm. leaning towards farming. So, anyway, I learned that the, uh, chairman of Sierra Club in Oklahoma 
was also the dean of the geography department at Oklahoma University. Oh. So I went to him and I said, hello, Mr. Marvin. Uh, I want to study sustainable agriculture and I can't afford an out-of-state school. But here's what I've read. Mm-hmm. And here's uh, who I've met and whose lectures I've seen. And he's like, I will absolutely sponsor you. Wow. And so he actually put me in some of his senior classes with his seniors wow. because I'd already done all the reading. Right. You know, and he liked what it did for the conversation. And he really liked what it did for the conversation when he'd bring something up and these people who were like thought that they were top of their game were being argued with by a <laughs> freshman. Right. You know, but uh, I learned that if you're not at an ag school, pretty much the geography department is where the liberal environmentalists all go. Okay. So it was a place to go find allies. Yeah. And so I went to two years of college just getting the, the background I would need and a science I would need to then continue studying. Mm-hmm. And I ended up in some programs with people who then went on to develop the sustainable agriculture programs at the ag schools. Yeah. And one of the workshops I went to was a summer-long thing in Old Snowmass, Colorado, which is right next door to Aspen. Okay. And uh, that was at Windstar Institute. And there were maybe 24 of us there for a summer learning sustainable agriculture and also learning kind of, by the way, if you're going to have a farm, you need to know how you're actually going to pay your bills. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. What's your side gig? Are you also going to have a bed and breakfast? Are you also going to... Right. One of our teachers uh, raised art sweaters. So she had sheep. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she was a sweater artist. Wow. Like, yeah. So, and that was how they augmented their farming income. Right. But I had... One of the other things I did, having been an outsider who wanted to do this weird thing, was I went to every art show that ever happened. If you called, back then we had answering machines, <laughs> yeah. uh, I would, my answering machine would tell you what shows were going on this weekend, because huh. that's where you'd probably find me. And so, and, and so I was already really drawn to these people that made things and traveled with, with an art circuit. And so when I went to Colorado, I had a business card in my pocket, because someday I was going to own a pair of those boots for Footloose Moccasin Makers. And it was the only thing I knew about anything within 50 miles of there. And the day that I finished the program, I picked up the paper, and they were hiring for full-time oh, um, wow. shop work. And so it was like, and I picked up the, the paper going, well, if I find a job where I'm learning something, I'll stay. Well, yeah, yeah. Because I'd come to this realization uh, by the end of that really intensive course, being in the course with people who were absolutely on the cutting edge and going off to do the things I hoped to see in the world. Mm-hmm. One, I did not have to save the world on my own. Correct. Two, yeah. that field was really at the point that you had two choices. You could either dive into hard science or you could dive into debate. Mm. And neither of those were what I wanted to do. I wanted to grow things, you know. And I learned enough about, like, the kind of miles we put on gasoline that's involved in every calorie we consume. Yeah. And realized... I'd probably actually get more of what I want to do by actually planting gardens everywhere I live. Yeah. And so 
you know, I, so I changed gears. I was no longer going to have to save the world on my own with sustainable agriculture. But um, so then I went to work for Footloose and then they sent me to the work it's at the Colorado. Renaissance Fair. Wow. Yeah. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> um, all right. Speaking of history, in five to ten years, you know, it's a typical uh, interview question or job interviews. Mm-hmm. In five to ten years, what do you see yourself doing? In five to ten years, my husband will be retired. I will still have a food, sh- food shops at this one festival, okay. and I'll be consulting the rest of the year, helping people build the life they love. And are you working towards consulting now? Because you do yeah. some consulting I do some. currently. I do some, and I just started trying, because most of my consulting has been like, shoulder to shoulder with people mm-hmm. and now i'm kind of using the tools of the internet to be able to work with people that aren't in my physical space mm-hmm. you know in the vernacular of our industry i've had people that say i'm not looking to change my circuit but i'd really like to work with you oh yeah you know yeah so i'm moving a lot of the stuff that i've just taught over and over and over again to people mm-hmm. into courses at uh, on my website with which is Ronnie.com. It's R-H-O-N-N-I.com. Okay. And uh, in January, there are, there's, a, there's a, a credit management course on there. There's a free uh, mini course. I have a, I have a, a way that I describe uh, some, uh, balancing your, your skill set for business with three elements, Maven, Manager, and Mogul. The okay. Maven is your creatrix that helps keep coming up with new ideas or new ways to improve on an existing idea. Your manager is the detail-oriented piece of you that keeps the money from slipping through the cracks. Mm. And then your mogul is the visionary and the big thinker. It's like maybe this could happen on a bigger scale. And you need all three. You need a balance of all three. I built a solid career just as a maven and manager. I'm really good at organizing things. Mm-hmm. I'm really good at keeping track of details, and I'm really creative. But I couldn't see past the dollar per hour matrix, okay. right? Yeah. And so, um, so I started putting myself in bigger circles. I started not using the word mogul as a laugh. Like I would jokingly refer to myself as a mogul as I was building my business. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, I'm a mogul. Yeah, that's exciting. You know, so, um, so anyway, I have courses that are going to drop in January that are um, how to build each of those elements. I have a quiz. I have a free quiz there mm-hmm. that you can go through. If you go to Ronnie.com, I think it kind of starts with the quiz, and you can figure out where you are in that matrix. Cool. Um, and then you'll get a free mini. The free mini course comes after it um, to kind of learn what, what exercises you might want to do. Okay. And then I'm going to open up three more um, one-on-one opportunities for Great. people in January that right now you can get you can get on the wait list at the Ronnie.com site cool and then we'll figure out who's the best fit who I yeah. want to work with yeah nice um, I will put all those in the show notes all the Great. links to that in the Great. show notes so people can just click through and see that um, if if you were to go back in time with the knowledge that you have currently this is a totally hypothetical question mm-hmm. would you do the same path you you've kind of done a lot of a lot of different things. Yeah, I think I would. I mean, I have the perfect life. 
It's pretty great. I really I do what I like, mm-hmm. and I the pieces of it that are hard I don't do for long stretches. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's like I can handle anything for a short period of time. So it's like yeah, it's really physically ta- taxing to do this two, and it's really three months for me. But I don't have the kind of hours in the setup that I do right. in the two months of the show. Right. But um, I can't think of a thing I would change. I really can't. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, do you have any other jobs that you did along your path that you haven't mentioned yet? Oh, Is there yeah. anything? Lots. Lots? <laughs> Let's see. I, there was a time when I had 12 different businesses open in one, at one time in Tuxedo. 12 different businesses yeah, we at, had one at one show. fair. Yeah, and that's kind of how we did shows. Like, wow. some people have one thing they do, and they do it at 17 shows and send managers. Yeah. My thing was not do as many shows, but have a lot of slices of the pie at each of those shows. Okay. And partially because we had built our schedule from being carpenters. And being carpenters, you had to have a solid month or six weeks before the show opened to do that construction. Yeah. And that means that you're not doing show, show to show to show. Right. Right, just, which is yeah. what a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, and so I don't have any five-day boogies. And then the few that I ended up with as shows got longer, those were the first things I changed because I don't like rushing. Yeah. I hate the turn and burns. That's yeah, what I, I call don't like it. Them. Is I don't like them. I, I close a show. I have to tear it down. I have two days to drive to it to set up the next show, and that yeah. is terrible. It's I don't so like it. so stressful. In and fact, when we started having a tighter and tighter window, I just, I used to spend, we had food at New York and all these little businesses, hair braiding and henna and bubble wands and banners and wax hands and I mean we just had a lot going on um we I would fly to Houston because we had games here and a campground here and then we bought one food booth here I would fly to Houston every week in September I would fly to Houston and work weekdays in Houston and weekends in New York wow um and that was better to me than flying down here and having to push for two weeks straight yeah Okay. Because I just don't like that part. Yeah. And I don't have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> right, I just don't, right. I don't have to do it. Yeah. I'm making up my rules. Right. So, right. so that is, uh, that's probably the only piece that I didn't like about it. Now I have to get back. What was your question? <laughs> uh, what, what would you, my, uh, would you choose the same path? Yeah. What, well, Absolutely. that, no. And then no, I, there was something and then I asked that. something after that. Um, there is something that I, and I'm, I don't, I don't remember because I didn't oh, write down the question. Right. <laughs> so um, that was one of those on-the-fly oh, questions. Uh, speaking of on-the-fly question, what is... Oh, I know what it was. Oh, what was it? It was what other jobs haven't you mentioned. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was hired. I was 30 years old, uh, and I'm not shy about the fact that I'm 56 now. Hmm. I was 30 years old, and I was hired to be the building coordinator of an entire festival. Whoa. And nice. Phil was hired to... Uh, ostensibly he was hired to build the the front gate and all the stages but we got there and they hadn't hired a job supervisor so phil ended up becoming job supervisor and then we had to hire local crews to do these other jobs Mm -hmm. but the georgia renaissance festival was 12 or 13 years old and sold the property and needed to move 
seven miles onto a new piece of property. Oh, my goodness. And so it had to be built to look like a 12 or 13-year-old show. It had to really look substantial. And that show had been doing both a spring and a fall show because both seasons are gorgeous in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And my job was to help crafters. We had a map of the layout. We altered the layout some, and um, there was an initial drawing, and then there was us actually getting on the site and moving some of the trees and then having to alter it to work with the actual terrain. Yeah. And so we laid out the whole show. I had a map of where all the booth spots were, and then I went to all the existing crafters. I gave them all three choices. And everyone, I'm very happy to say that everyone got their first or second choice of location. Yeah. And then uh, I had to accept all the drawings for all these booths. And then I had to go to the county and get permits for all of them. Oh, my gosh. And then I had to kind of handhold the building inspector and all of these independent builders. Mm. So uh, basically I was high. And mind you, it was almost entirely men building. Yeah, yeah. And I'm younger than all of them, and they've all been doing it for a very long time, but they hadn't been doing it in places where they had to meet building code. Right. And so I had to really kind of give them boundaries. Mm -hmm. And then I also had to help them because we wanted to get the park built. Yeah. So I would go, I would make loops and get all their questions. I would ask the questions of the building inspector so that they're not on-site scrutinizing. Mm -hmm. And then I could go take the answer to the guys and then they could have the right thing in place before I walked by with the building inspector. Right. The next week because he was out there every week. Right. Um, But that's a job that doesn't exist at most shows. Right. And... It, you have to have somebody that's really familiar with building codes who, I mean, I, I have some lifelong admirers who are build, business owners that I saved tens of thousands of dollars for. Wow. I called one guy. I stopped one guy's job because I could look at the package and I'm like, there's no floor joists on this guy's package. He had built a, he had poured a, a perimeter foundation uh-huh. and you know, when you're really in that world, you could look at a package dropped and go, Where, where's this floor joist? And so this guy flies out from California to put the, gr- the girl that's causing, the uppity right. girl who's <laughs> right. keeping his building from being built. Right, right. And I stood there and I said, uh, I said, you need, uh, and, and the, his people had refused to build at the elevation that they were going to have to have to keep water from running through the booth. So while he probably really only needed maybe two by eights for the span, I told him he needed two by twelves. And he's like, why do I need two by twelve foundation? And I said, uh, he he says, this is, this is ridiculous. It's not, I don't need two by twelves. And I said, I turned to the person building for him and I said, why don't you show Ken how your floor is going together? And he starts laying down his flooring just stretching from foundation wall to foundation wall with nothing in between. Yeah. And Ken saw it immediately, turned to me and said, and you have two by 12s for sale on site? I said, yes, <laughs> sir, I do. We had, yeah. there's a, there was a treatment plant nearby and we made a deal with them. Wow. And so they sold to us for the price they were selling to Home Depot. Wow. And that's great. We had, well, I mean, so we had stuff on site to fix it when we, 
when something went awry like that. Yeah. And I'm just going to pause okay, it right now. Okay, let's do that. It's I'm fine. It's, you're fine. You're fine. Pausing. And we are back. Uh, so the, the crazy thing about being a CEO is that you have very limited, limited personal time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty Being much. the boss, you got to be interrupted yeah. occasionally. That's what happens. That makes sense. I have 10 people working downstairs today. It's a Wednesday. Yeah. We won't be open to the public till Saturday. Yeah. And I will have I'll have 10 people the next 3 days. I try to give them Monday, Tuesday off so they can rest after the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um and then I, I take those I take yeah. half days off a couple days a week. Mm-hmm. I don't ever get a whole day off. You're right, right. In December. December is for sleeping. Oh, that's good. That's good. It is the winter time. So yes. it is the hibernation time. You that's are it. a bear. <laughs> that's it. I am absolutely a bear. All right. Um, I remember something on your Facebook one time because we've been Facebook friends for a little bit now. And it was it was talking about um, not just like taking time for your schedule. Oh, man. I had it earlier. I should have made a note about it. But it was more like, um, oh, I remember. It was taking away something. You you mentioned that you're always analyzing oh. what's going on in your world and what's the one thing that's causes me the most stress. Yeah. That's how major decisions, like, uh, you know, like life change decisions. Can, sometimes it's, can I drive this car another three years? Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or, or it's, do I want to drop that festival? Do I want to sell this piece of my business? Yeah. Do I want to live closer to my parents, to my to something else? Right. Mm-hmm. Those kind of decisions. We've never ever attached money to the making that decision. Okay. It's always stress. Mm. What is the thing in my life right now that is causing me the most stress? Okay. And then find a way to fix that. Because it might not be you've got to sell that business. It might be I've got to pay twice as much and hire a manager that can really do everything there. Yeah. You know, I'm, I have to, you know, so I have to be willing to make less money at that place in order to lower my stress level. Yeah. So, and for, on, I want to say we did it every five, excuse me, every five years. Okay. And it, that would be like, Okay, the most at one point, the most stressful thing we did was hauling a 35-foot fifth wheel around the country. Phil has a tractor-trailer background. Yeah. It wasn't an issue for him, except that everything we owned and my boyfriend were on the road, and people pull in front of you not knowing that you're the size of a tractor-trailer and have less brakes. Yeah, yeah. So it was stressful for me. Right. And then we had the year that I couldn't go on the road because I had breast cancer, mm. and I needed to stay in one place to treat it. If our roles had been reversed, I couldn't have done it because I couldn't haul that trailer. I did not have the experience and the confidence to move something that big down the road. Right. So what we changed was we started, okay, this show, we did a show in New York that let us park the trailer and pay storage. Mm -hmm. And then my shops in Georgia had uh, enough space to build an an apartment above it. And our, our shop in... Oklahoma, when we designed it, we made room for an apartment so we didn't have to haul a trailer there. Mm-hmm. And we had, a, we already owned a piece of property here next to the Texas Renaissance Festival. And we had, 
we had kept our trailer there. Well, the year I was sick, Phil built a restaurant there. And part of that was Phil's a fixer, and he wasn't able to do any fixing in regards to my cancer journey. Mm -hmm. So what he did is he built his own, his piece of healing was building my next job. Mm -hmm. Like he built this vision for the future, and that kept him happy and grounded and busy. Mm -hmm. And then for three years, I ran that open during the festival, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights, five, 600 meals ready to go when the cannon went off. And I got caught doing a great job there. And that's why (laughs) I was invited to buy the bakery when it came available here inside the park. Phil had a couple businesses inside the park, but I didn't have anything here. And we built a little apartment on the corner of that so that we didn't have to haul a trailer to here. And that all sounds like it was kind of, and it's true that it just kind of organically evolved. But then as our businesses were growing, that meant that we could be in two places. I could do that, that September fly back and forth and be in my own bed. Yeah. It wasn't one of us is with the trailer and the other is somewhere else. Right. Air quotes. And like in a tent, right. Right. Staying with friends. Yeah. Yeah. So it allowed us to keep building because and it seems like that's actually the story. But the story is we reduced the stress, which opened bandwidth, which allowed us to keep building. Okay. You know? Yeah. And so, so that stress, um, I'm not, I'm losing the word for the, the term, that element what, what am I looking for? What for, is the word I'm looking for? This, uh, the component. This, okay. The, changing that one component, not, not worry. Yes, sometimes it affects your money. You yeah. know, it's like, okay, we can't, I can't do September's anymore. Right. We need to sell out of, the, well, what happened was those two shows decided to overlap. And it was like, we can't do two food shows with an overlap. Yeah. I could yeah. do a hair braiding show that overlapped with a food booth, but I can't do two foods. Two foods. Yeah. And so... Uh, we decided we were going to sell out of the one that was further from our house. We live four hours from the Texas show in a little sweet little beach town. Mm-hmm. And it was obvious we were going to retire here. Um, and so we sold out of the New York show. Wow. Which we love the New York show. And I still tell people it's my favorite place to summer ever. Right. Ever. It's yeah. just beautiful. It's an old botanical garden. It's in the mountains. It's if you get on the right train, it's 48 minutes from Manhattan. Wow, cool. It's just lovely. And I ha- we have hundreds of friends up there. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so we still try to visit New York every summer. That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. And now you can look at it like a, like a vacation as right. opposed to work. Right. Um, and so you've, you've built an apartment basically over every booth every food booth or just about every food booth just about this had? booth that we're this apartment we're sitting in right now mm-hmm. came with this booth oh okay this booth was was already a 30 story year, yeah it was like 30 years old when i bought it wow and yeah two-story and actually this apartment at the time was nicer than the house we owned on the in the border it's like what wow this, this <laughs> thing had central heat and air wow you know it's like yeah Swanky, very needed for Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead yeah. of the window rattlers like we had in the valley, right? But right. It is what it is. 
Yeah. Uh, as a performer, we don't often get the ability to stay on site. Mm-hmm. And, and there are some festivals that definitely the booth owner has an extra space. Or if you worked at this booth, then they'll allow you to sleep in the, the front portion of the booth. If you have a sleeping bag, but you got to clear it every fair day, <laughs> you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, cause I know some people have slept like one of my first fair jobs. I talk about this on another interview is, uh, was pale moon and mm-hmm. it was, um, I love they make stuff. this, yeah, hand carved cowbone and Korean and they have like a little, a little shop area that the, that the ladies work in and they close that off with some curtains and it's a beautiful design. Chris Miller designed the entire booth. It's fantastic. Um, and I know people who have slept in that display area and that it just sounds so magical i guess rose-colored glasses you know until it's pouring rain or freezing cold or (laughs) sweltering hot or well bugs crawling or whatever right yes i I live inside a theme park yeah which is in the woods which a lot of people (laughs) pay money for they really do like i know uh i work sherwood i can't remember if you've worked it before i haven't worked it but i visited it visited um, so at Sherwood, they have a castle where you can Airbnb it and you mm-hmm. can like rent a room and you get your breakfast in the morning and it's a full nice. on bed and breakfast in a castle. Nice. That's wild to me. It's weird too as a worker because on Friday nights, I don't want to be in character. I don't yeah. want to perform yet. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. Not, I don't like that. I'm not ready for that. So. I don't like that. They I roll do. in and, you know, on a Friday and they leave mm-hmm. on a Monday. And I'm like, I'm me. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of shows where crafters live above their shops, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the Georgia show has a rule that you can't sublet oh. your living space. It has to be the owner or the manager. Of the so booth. they know it's yeah. a person of responsibility. Right. But then security's not a problem because you know who's in your neighborhood and who belongs in your neighborhood. Right. Right. And it's the same people every time because it's the owner or the longtime manager. Right. right? So right. you can spot somebody that's out of place. Right. And it also creates better neighborhoods. For sure. You know, it's like these guys have a potluck on Friday. Right. Right. You know. Yeah, some festivals have what's called a bazaar bazaar where mm-hmm. you get to um, fellow participants get to hang out with each other on a Monday morning and, yeah. and chat and then. Some are so big that they have uh, Rescue Foundation comes out and they do uh, health fair days. And yeah. uh, like we just had one here at Texas mm-hmm. on Monday, a health nice. fair day, and I got acupuncture. Like, oh, sweet. So cool. In the middle of the woods, that's a, you know, a lovely breakfast, a nice lunch, and acupuncture. <laughs> you know? Sweet. Who could ask for anything more? Yeah. I like I like Bizarre Bizarre for what it does for community building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I it's think a it's- nice hang out you know mm-hmm. people juggle who don't usually juggle and it's there to right. they're there to hang out and have your morning coffee with each other right. and or it's see or how the weekend went it's a kind of there's a little market element to it that yeah like people yeah. that might not be juried let's say they're they have their own art form but what they're doing is managing for somebody else while they right. build their own side gig yeah they'll sell their stuff mm-hmm. at that venue because they don't have a booth at this show right or they'll right. sell old costume right or you know. just random clothes or random, 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 random stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's neat. It's a, it's part of the community and it, it's really fun. Yeah. Anyway. I like right. it. Uh, my last question. Okay. This is it. 
this is done, uh, very close to being done. What is one bit of advice that you would give to someone to become a CEO of whatever is that's what got your it. job is got now? It. You have to, to be a CEO, you've got to have, you've got to embrace your inner manager. Like we think of a manager as someone you hire or a job that you have for somebody else. Yeah. But you have to at least know enough about the structure and the management of your, whatever it is you're building. Yeah. To know that, so to peek over somebody's shoulder and know that it's happening properly. Right. You know, right. it's like you, the manager is who keeps the money from slipping through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And that's your job as CEO is to be the overarching, keep all the details together. So you're, you have to get familiar with the legalities of payroll, of workers' comp. All right. In Texas, workers' comp is by choice. But I've got 40 employees. I would like to have workers' comp. Yeah. You know, and keeping all of that up up to snuff. Liability insurance for all your shows. All of the, that stuff comes in, and you need one person that's really going to be responsible for it. Cool. And just know that it's going to be a lot of damn paperwork. Yeah. And if you want to grow to moguldom, you've got to be okay with doing paperwork. Okay. You know. Be willing to be your own secretary. Figure out where you can sub out when you can. Like, I'm currently learning to use a VA just for the stuff that normally gets completely ignored this time of year. Mm-hmm. Like, I have, right now, every other post that's going up on my Instagram is something I created three quarters of. Okay. Right? It's photos yeah. I took. Yeah. Quotes I collected. Uh-huh. She then puts it together, and since I took the photo, I'm already inspired by the photo. Right. So she sends it to me two days ahead. I write some text for it. Mm-hmm. And twice a week, that'll go up, which means that there's some activity on a thing that normally just falls off my list. Right, yeah. Because I'm working so many hours. So, because I'm working about 65 hours a week this time of year. Yeah, yeah. So, but I don't have to work in January. No, you don't. I don't have to work in December. No, you can sleep, and then I can do whatever I want. some pie. That's it. <laughs> That's I can make some pie. Yes. But uh, so I'm on a learning curve with what, what that looks like and hired somebody that knew more about some technology than I did. Yeah. So that they can do that. Right. I, she gets like 10 to 20 hours a week. And I was referred to her by somebody else. And she's not even, she's not like an online business manager or anything. She's right. just doing some of the little things that I want to get done. Um, I'm not handing off any of the show interactions, PR mm-hmm. interactions. Like yesterday, there was a PR thing that I couldn't get to because I had other commitments. Phil covered those. Yeah. I provided the food, but he was the smiling face in case they had any questions. Right. You know, right. you don't put just anybody in those representing right. your business. Right. And that, I think, is a mistake some people make. They want to stay home and hire somebody. I mean, I've had multiple businesses offered to me because I was a manager and I was the person that the show had a better connection to. Oh, yeah. And yeah. those interpersonal connections, all these festivals are mom and pop businesses. Right. They're owned by individuals. I think there's only like 
one or two companies that own more than three shows. Yeah, there's Renaissance Entertainment Corporation, but it's still run by one uh, One couple. Yeah. 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 Or, and or then whatever. there's Mid-America Festivals. Right, but it's still three. owned. No, five. 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 And but it's owned by one guy. Right, right. Know? So the, but all these other ones are owned by a person. Mm-hmm. And so it still comes down to the interpersonal relationship between yeah. Yeah. the vendor and Maybe it's not the owner. Maybe it's the vendor coordinator who's yeah. been there for years and yeah. really is solid and core. Mm-hmm. But those, inter- if these people didn't want to have interpersonal relationships, they'd have built a different business. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Right. they'd be buying and selling franchises. Mm-hmm. They want to interact with artists. That's why they're here. Right. And so that interaction, if you start thinking somebody else is going to cover that for you, then you're losing a piece of what keeps you in at the, I mean, that's actually why I, two of the businesses that I'm, that I sold this past year are for a show that I don't have time to go to anymore. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that's not how this industry works. Right, so I right. sold it to my sister because my sister also has hair braiding at another show. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Eric, who is the person that managed my henna booth at that show for a decade and a half. Cool. Because he's there to have the personal relationship that you have to have in this industry. Right. Yeah. So they have to see your, your smiling face. They have to face. see your smiling face. And I God bless those owners who send managers out, but you yeah. know. Yeah. It's it's tough. It's well and it's just it can work, but mm-hmm. it's not always long lived. Right. I in just my my history of Ren Fairs, like the the turnover rate at some of these booths. And I'm not sure why it's such a high turnover. Like, if the product is good, why can't that owner, creator, manager keep the people? Is it because they are, you know, they come in for one season? Like I did at Pale Moon. I came in for one year. And I was like, that's great, but I want to do that. You know, this is awesome, but that's more fun. Um, Well, there's some of that. But there's also owners of businesses that are still in a starving artist narrative and therefore they have a hard time paying people what they can get anywhere. You get a good yeah. person, they could work anywhere. Mm-hmm. So if you want to keep a good person, you've got to pay them. Like my manager here for this festival makes enough money that even if she lands a sweet job in the Houston market, mm-hmm. she can honestly tell them, I'm leaving you for three months because right. you can't pay me what Ronnie's paying me. Right, right. And then I know I have a solid manager coming back for me. And and you do something which is, uh, I think, from in my experience, is unheard of from uh, from anyone I've ever talked to, is you give raises yeah. for longevity. So yeah. if somebody returns to the next season, you're, you've got a raise built in. Yeah. Every year someone comes back for me, they get a dollar an hour raise. Wow. But I save more than that on training. Right, right. You know? And then they're coming back, and they do my training. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's I'm smart. really good at building teams, but I'm really good at building teams because I see all of them as people. Right. And I do everything I can to pay them what they're worth. Mm-hmm. So that means that I've got a, I got a better looking team than my competitors. Yeah. That's you know? great. Um, and some, of, some other people work differently in that, like, they'll only pay their middle management really great. Right. And they'll have um more turnover below that 
right. or they have a tip structure that means that those bartenderses are going to come back every year. Right, now, my booths right. are mostly food booths. So, so tips I, are lower. Because well, tips are pooled in my entire shop, oh. whereas a bar doesn't do that. A, the bars, the person, the bartender gets all the tips and then they might tip out. Okay. But I'm building a cohesive team. The back of the house is doing as much or more work than the people on the front. And so if we want them to hustle in the back to help the people in the front, yeah, they all have to be. All have to get tipped. And they're, they're all pulled. They're tipped according to the number of hours they work. Oh, so okay. it's like, okay, the booth made $2,500 in tips. Okay. It took 283 man hours to get those tips. Wow. So that means they made this many tips per hour, and then... It goes through a formula and goes into an envelope, and they're tipped the next day mm-hmm. because it's too much math to get them tipped out that night. Right, right, yeah. So, so even my lowest paid people, like my counter people, start at twelve. Mm-hmm. That's still um, really good for yeah for some locations. It's good like for Texas, Louisiana. Um, I think it's still seven twenty five an hour yeah. for minimum wage. Yeah, so. that's about what it is here. Oh, okay. So my my counter people start at twelve, and then Saturday they made. Eight ninety five an hour in tips, so they made wow. over twenty dollars an hour. Yeah, and so great. and then I've got people that have been coming back for years that are making twenty bucks an hour. Wow, you know. Yeah. So, so they made close to thirty dollars an hour, right? Right. right? So it's it's easy to get people back. Like I don't, I will tell you that my when I lose a great person, mm-hmm. I've lost it because they've gone on to a bigger opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm fine with that. I want everybody that's ever worked with me to have a bigger and better life for having done so. Yeah. So yeah. I, this year I lost my manager and my middle manager because they both got into nursing school. Oh, wow. wow. And, but I knew eight months ago mm-hmm. and, um, and was able to, to shuffle, in shuffle and, and hire yeah. and, you know, we figured it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had been with me for like six and eight years. Wow! So it was it was a it was a shift. Yeah, it was a shift. Yeah, so, but yeah. it's good. I've got I, I I did a lot of visualization of how uh, my team was going to be this year, and all that seems to really have completely shaped out the way I wanted it to. Perfect. It's kind of like how uh, how uh, movies and or rather TV shows in the fifth and sixth season they almost always change up all of the crew. Because yeah. they're making too much money, and it's it's not a it's not like the crew was doing a bad job. They were actually doing a great job, but they were costing the company too much right. money. Well, that's not why these people left. No, they left because they got into they nursing left, school. They left because they right. got a better job. Yeah. But it's yeah. similar in the sense of the turnover yeah. and yeah. having well, and to quote unquote start over. But right. but you've got great people now that are going to hopefully be with you for. And they're already talking about next year. So so that's I'm great. confident. I'm confident. That's great. And then we. Uh, are, I mean, some of the people that left me went and opened their own restaurants. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, I have people that work for me that are now doing, they've moved away to, you know, because they work for me, which kind of meant moving around, going to a place that wasn't really home to them. Yeah. So a lot of those folks, my middle management, kind of the extra perk that they really got was a lot of business mentoring because I can't stop talking business mentoring. Yeah. So if you're in close proximity to me, you're, you're just, just going to kind of get it. Get it. <laughs> yeah. And so many of those have gone on and have their own gigs somewhere. They moved back home closer to family or, 
yeah. to a town that they fell in love with while they were traveling the circuit, you know. Yeah, that's I, really cool. And I still get notes from them. That's know, wonderful. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Ronnie. This was a lot I, of fun. I, good. I'm glad you liked it. Um, I'm going to do my outro now, which I don't have a very quick, soft way to just get into it, except for just saying thank you for joining me at uh, here at Texas, um, so the Texas Renaissance Festival. And I'm going to show notes all your links. Like, oh, Texas Renaissance Festival is yeah. open for six more weekends. Okay. Our closing weekend is going to be the three-day weekend following Thanksgiving Day. So Great. That'll be a Celtic Christmas theme. We'll all have Christmas lights up. Nice. I'll have lots of gingerbread items in the bakery. Very cool. Um, and uh, a we, good way to um, to jumpstart your holiday shopping. That's right. And mm-hmm. and unlike in Houston, for decades there'd be like traffic reports about which malls were already out of parking. Oh my gosh! We do not run out of parking here. Really? So, yeah, that's great. We're too organized about it. So. <laughs> uh, Come out here and do your Christmas shopping and be able to tell somebody who made the thing that you gave them. Right. Right. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, here we Thank go. You. I'm going to do this and turn it on now. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Cassie Townsend. The theme song is Wrapped by Greg Lestraps. Chris Kempton is our associate producer. Support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash workhistory. And you can join other supporters that are currently on there, like Sydney Messner, Mel Kelly, Rich Teachout, Chris Hansen. Show notes have additional info on Ronnie. Remember to rate, review, share, and subscribe because it helps. And tell us, what's your work history?